Finding God in Unexpected Places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. My guest this week is really in need of no introduction to friends of this podcast because Keith Giles has been on this program so often that some of you think he is a permanent co-host, which I would have loved. (laughs) Keith has been a great friend to the podcast in ways that many of you will never know. But most of you know him as the best-selling author of the Jesus Unseries, which we'll talk about a little bit today. Started with Jesus Untangled and continues with Jesus Unforsaken. He's also one of the co-hosts of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, which is hugely popular and continues to grow by leaps and bounds and even new co-hosts. And uh, it's been fantastic to watch that program develop. He's got so many irons in the fire. He's a teacher. He is uh, a counselor to many. He is a Facebook wizard and um, just an incredible all-around human being. He's a wonderful husband and father. I'm just so impressed with my friend, and I'm so grateful to have him back on the podcast for this special episode. Keith Giles, my brother. Hey, Jason. Thank you so much, man. And I, I just want to say, man, the, the feeling is so mutual. I love you so much. I'm, I'm, I have been so blessed by you just personally. I think the, what was it? Uh, the first time I met you, right, I was doing a, uh, an event. Was it Cincinnati, right? Or outside Cincinnati? Yeah, that was, that, that was the uh, it was one with Joshua Lawson. It was something about um, the nonviolent Jesus or something, the nonviolent love of God or something. Yep. Anyway, yeah, you, awesome. you drove up for that, and I was like, "No way, dude!" And so I got to meet you in person then, and then I did an event down in uh, what was that, Georgia, with Bill Thrasher, and then you yep. came out for that, and we got to do a, a panel together, which was I was so blessed, man. That was such, so much fun. Me and you and Richard Murray and Bill, uh, that was a blast. And yeah, I mean, um, I love this podcast. I'm I'm very sad that it's going away. Not just because I won't have a chance to co-host, you know, every other episode. <laughs> <laughs> you already have your own gig. <laughs> I know, and I just started another podcast you know, like last week. That's all right. But you know, man, yeah, you, you are just such a you're an inspiration to me. I don't know if I've ever told you that, but um, you inspire mm-hmm. me, man. You are one of the most authentic people. I see Jesus in you. And it's just awesome to see. I just your heart for people, your humility, you know, the ways you put your family and your kids first and all that. That's just it's really awesome. It, it inspires me. So yeah, I'm kinda kind of sad that the podcast is is not gonna continue, but I am super honored that I got to be the first uh guest and that you wanted to have me come on and be the final guest. So thank you for blessing me, man. Thank you for I just want to say on behalf of all the listeners, because I know they would want to say this to you if they could. Thank you for being awesome. Thank you for putting together this amazing podcast. And um, just you're, you're a gift to the kingdom, man, and to the body of Christ. Oh, brother. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Um, whew, I love you. And I'm grateful for all that you do. Uh, just uh, you are one of the main reasons that I am still involved in social media at all. So I'm so grateful for your voice. Yeah, man. All right. Um, I want to talk to you today. Um, not just about the subject of your latest book, but one of the things you you have really opened up avenues for people who are deconstructing or uh, deconstructing or on a spiritual evolution to connect with you and have someone to walk beside them in that journey. Uh, 
Um, and I hear from so many people who are at the very beginning of deconstruction, and I hear the same questions over and over again. And I love it because people are starting to seek out answers for themselves, yeah. which is awesome, right? Because they've been force-fed answers in other places, and now they're starting to seek out some things for themselves. But they generally have many of the same questions. And those questions really do relate to your latest book. One of those questions is, well, why did Jesus die? If God is love, if God is all merciful, all forgiving, if he's never been angry with us in the first place, then why did Jesus have to die? And, and I think there's an assumption in that question. Yeah. So let's start there. Did Jesus have to die, Keith? Well, uh, the, I mean, it's such you know this is this is such a difficult um, topic in some ways because uh, in some ways the answers are easy. I could just say in some ways yes, but in other ways no. And and in the way when I say no, not in the way we were told. So I guess that's where we should begin. Um, I think it's easier to say what it isn't, uh, ha- what isn't happening on the cross, and that is what what isn't happening on the cross is that the father is not um, pouring out his wrath upon his son. Jesus is not suffering his father's wrath that was intended for you and me. And that, that um, none of that is happening so that God can forgive us. So if those, those are our assumptions and, and frankly, there are assumptions because we've been told that I was told that my whole life growing up. And this is uh, this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement theory a lot of Christians don't even know that that's what that is. I, I have actually tried to talk to Christians that I've used the phrase penal substitution. They don't know what I'm talking about. But but when I use the terminology of, well, you know, God is a wrathful God. He's too holy to look upon sin. We're wretches and worms. God can't be in the presence of sin. And therefore, um, you know, there's a separation between God and man. And the only way for God's wrath to be satisfied is for somebody to suffer and die and be tortured. And so Jesus you know, jumps in there, takes our place, you know, substitutes himself uh, for us. And then once that happens, you know, now everything's wonderful again and God can forgive us and love us. Yeah, that that's the way I was explaining the gospel probably my whole life growing up. And it's only been in the last probably like five or six years that I've really seriously started to say, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's scripturally true. And I don't think it's consistent with who the Father is, as Jesus has revealed the Father to us. So that's really why I wrote this book, uh, Jesus Unforsaken, was to, number one, just settle people's fears and concerns about that view of God, because it's a pretty monstrous view of God, and kind of put them at peace about that, and then try to explain, well, then what is happening? And so, yeah, it's it's a difficult question to answer simply, because it is... There's so much baggage to explain what it isn't and then why it isn't. And then once we've dealt with that, then to say, well, then then we have the same question again. We're still asked. Then we'd ask the same question a second time. So then why did he die? And I mean, one of the one of the answers I would give when people say, you know, why did Jesus have to die? I, I would say to somebody, I don't know. Why do you have to die? Well, because I'm human. Exactly. <laughs> God took on flesh and took on mortality willingly, and therefore he had to die. So in that sense, the answer is, did Jesus have to die? Absolutely. But he didn't have to die to satisfy God's wrath. He had to die because 
he was a human being and he had taken on more mortality. And therefore, he had decided that he was going to die no matter what. That was part of the equation always. So I think, you know, working out what's really going on, that's the difficult thing. And sorry, that's a very long answer to your question. I'm not even sure I answered it. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a difficult. It is. It's a, it's a, and it's a loaded question because it comes with a lot of assumptions and you don't know what assumptions are behind the question every time. Yeah. But I remember asking Brad Gerzak that question in episode six. And his answer startled me, but was so simple and so easy. And I said, why did Jesus have to die? And he said, because we killed him. That's right. And see, this is exactly right. Because we killed him. He had to die because that's what happens when somebody drives spikes yeah. in your hands. And, and feet. see, this is, this is also the interesting thing, too, is that to, like, when you start noticing that in the book of Acts, the way the disciples describe the crucifixion of Jesus is not it's a wonderful thing. They, they describe it as a murder. They are accusing the, the Jewish, you know, the religious authorities, uh, you know, you killed an innocent man. You murdered an innocent man. Um, it's not a good thing. They're like they're very angry, very upset. This was an injustice. This was a we did we did something really horrible. And ultimately, it's really the ultimate sin, right? Like to kill not only an innocent man to to commit deicide. We tried to kill God. I mean, talk about if if you're going to define sin as rebellion against God, there's nothing worse than you know no no greater expression of rebellion against God than to try to kill God. And so, yeah, Jesus died because, yeah, we killed him. We, we put him to death. And But understanding why we did it and understanding also, I think this is one of the critical things as well. It's how God responds, right? It's how Jesus responds to that. The, the typical sacrificial model, right, that they, even the Jewish religious system took for granted was kind of this, you know, it's really kind of a volcano God view of God. It's a very primitive idea of God. God is, God is good and holy and perfect, right? We're horrible, sinful, wretches, hopeless. God's God is wrathful. The only way to make the wrathful God happy is to kill something innocent and lay it on the altar and, you know, let it bleed and maybe burn it and something, and it should be something really innocent. And what's more innocent than a child? And it probably should be a virgin because that's also, you know, there's an innocence there as well. So this sort of virgin child sacrifice model of appeasing, that we would do that to appease this wrathful God. What Jesus does on the cross is really turn that whole thing upside down where it's our, we're the ones who are wrathful. The wrath is down here. The wrath isn't up there with God. The wrath is down here and it's expressed towards, towards God on the cross, right? We're, we're, pouring out our wrath on Jesus. So, and so he's saying, look, I'm not, a, I'm not wrathful. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So the father isn't wrathful. Uh, you know, you can do anything you want to me. I'll even give, I'll let go of all of my power and I'll give you power over me. Do whatever you want. And then when, you, when you're finished, I'll show you that I love you. I'll, I'll even forgive you as you're in the act, as you're in the process of doing it. I'll just forgive you automatically. Just I forgive you because you don't, you don't understand what's happening. And um, so I think that's one of the more powerful things to me that's, that's happening on the cross is that Jesus has come to correct our wrong views of God. People believed that God was angry and wrathful, that he was too good, he was too holy, he was too perfect. We are just wretches and worms. And Jesus contradicts all those things in his teachings. He contradicts those things in his behaviors. 
by and 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 he does it by saying, you know, if you want to know what the father's like, look at me. And so we see him not being wrathful, not excluding people, being radically inclusive, expressing the kindness and the goodness of God by um, not separating himself from sinners, but hanging out with them. In fact, he'd prefer to hang out with with sex workers and drunks and you know the the sick and the lame and the people that everybody else considered sinners. And you know Samaritans and and uh, Roman centurions and uh, he's he's really breaking every convention and do and by doing so is showing us a radically different picture of God and so on the cross it's the ultimate expression of that loving kind forgiving submissive to us uh, God a God who submits himself to us and our anger and our wrath and endures all of it and then in the process says. I love you and I forgive you and this and now I want you to see who I really am. So I think it's a, there's a lot going on on the cross. Um but I think we really have to get over this sort of monster god uh picture of god you know in our minds. Oh, I definitely want to unpack where the monster god version came from uh, in a minute but let's follow up on that original question with this. What was it about the life and message of Jesus? that the religious folks and the politically political leaders of his day could not stand to the point that they had to silence him? Well, I mean, on so many levels, right? Number one, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's constantly contradicting Moses. He's saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He's constantly opposing the Pharisees and exposing their wrong ideas of who God is. Um, he, he's redefining what the holiness of God looks like, that it doesn't look like separation, that it looks like compassion and kindness, even to our enemies. Um, so, you know, a lot of what, pretty much everything that Jesus does and says is a threat to the system. Um, I think we cannot, we cannot downplay the, the intersection of the significance between when Jesus overturns the tables in the temple, that gets the attention of both the Romans and the Jewish authorities, because um, that was a significant source of income for both the, the uh, Jewish authorities and the Romans. I mean, uh, and especially during Passover, uh, when, you know, we have this massive influx, probably millions of people coming into Jerusalem for Passover. They're all, you know, they have money to spend. They're going to buy doves and lambs and uh, all these things. I mean, a significant amount of money is going to be made by both the Roman Empire and the Jewish temple system. And so for Jesus to turn over the tables and basically put a stop to that for, you know, almost a week. Yeah, I can imagine that that there were some private meetings about this guy and how he we needed to deal with him. So just on so many levels, Jesus is, is upsetting the status quo. He's hitting them in the pocketbook. He's hitting them in their authority. They're, you know, they're, the Jewish authorities are upset about the fact that Jesus seems to command so much influence uh, and it threatens them. So there's just uh, there's so many levels of, of things going on. Um, you know, and you can go all the way back to, I think it was Plato or Socrates, I think might have been Plato, but, but I think yeah, where, where, you know, there was the, a prophecy probably close to two or 300 years before Jesus that if a truly righteous man ever showed up, right, we would beat him and gouge his eyes out and crucify him. And lo and behold, that's what happened. So in, in many ways, the, the what happened to Jesus is inevitable, right? 
and I, I go into the book as well. I can, I, I, we can go into this if you want a little bit uh, as well. But I talk in the book about some of Gerard's theories about scapegoating and mimetic desire. And some of that is also playing into what's happening with Jesus. And throughout the, that passion story, we see multiple examples of that playing out. And many, in some ways, this is part of what Jesus is exposing when it talks about exposing the, uh, the powers of darkness and principalities uh, by the cross. I mean, that's kind of what's happening. Our participation in this, in this mimetic rivalry and the scapegoating mechanism is on full display all throughout the, the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, the torture of Jesus, and the death of Jesus. And so that's one of the ways I think he, by, by exposing that, he once and for all reveals to us what our sacrificial systems are based upon. <laughs> it is based upon these kind of very primitive systems and um, driven by some things that, that are kind of built into human nature that most of it, it's a blind spot. Like we're oblivious to it. We don't even realize that these are things that are driving our everyday behaviors. And again, Jesus is helping to expose that and set us free from some of those things as well. Yeah, you almost get the sense that Jesus is is saying, you know, the the civilization of his time had gotten so good at pointing fingers the other way, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the Jews were being oppressed by the Romans. The Romans were blaming the Jews for a lot of the problems in their society. The Gentiles were out there kind of on their own, and, and they were kind of developing some, well, rejection syndrome because the Jews had said they weren't following the right God or in the right way. Uh, and Jesus is just like, all right, fine. If you need a scapegoat, I'll be the scapegoat. We, we don't have to point a finger at anybody. You can blame me and I'll die. I, oh, I saw yeah. a piece today from Father Kenneth Tanner on the God who dies. Oh my goodness. Powerful, powerful, powerful. The God who dies, the God who's willing to die. One of the questions that a lot of our friends who are listening struggle with when they start to rethink some things is on the divinity of Jesus. I, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, Keith, because I don't want to put you on the yeah. spot too much, which I kind of do all the time <laughs> on, the, on these episodes. But have you ever struggled with the divinity of Jesus? You know, I, I'm sure there was a time when I, in some of my deconstruction, when that was a question for me, and I, I was not sure where I stood on that. I would say, again, this is one of these questions that it's difficult just to give a simple answer. Like I could just give you a simple answer, but if I don't unpack it, you might assume I mean something I don't mean or, or not realize that I mean more than I'm saying. So, you know, the idea of the divinity of, of, of Jesus or the divinity of Christ, you know, the way I was taught this doctrine was in the sense that Jesus and only specifically this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, was God walking around in the flesh. And I affirm that, but what I what I'm starting to realize now, this is going to sound so weird. <laughs> I, I realize this is going to sound very strange to people, but but I also feel like that you know Christ is in me as well. Like I am also the incarnation of Christ in the world. You know, Jesus said, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." Well, because Christ has is abiding in me, and I'm abiding in Christ, I should be able to say. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or I should be able to say, I only do what I see the Father doing. Um, now, I don't mean that I'm, I didn't create the universe. I, I'm not, I, I didn't walk around 2,000 years ago in Palestine. I'm not Jesus. But, but I, what, I, what I would affirm now is that I, I think I see Christ 
kind of like Richard Rohr expresses it, you know, it's, it's a panentheism where Christ is in all. In fact, this is what Paul says in Ephesians. Paul flat out says that Christ is all and is in all. And it took me a long time to get to that, to that point that I could say that with some confidence um, that I think scripture supports this idea that Paul affirms this idea. It might be truer uh, of Jesus in a sense. In other words, like there may be things about the way Jesus embodied Christ and, and, and lived it out in a way that was sort of like, uh, you know, Paul describes it as the first fruits. There are things that are, because it's true of Christ, it's true of me and all humanity. And so there is, I think, a, a, a necessary sort of prime, I don't know how to express it, sort of a prime idea of, uh, of Jesus being that initial you know, older brother expression of, of the Christ. But because of Christ and because of what he has accomplished in his life, in the incarnation, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, and in, and in his abiding presence in, in the world and in, in people today, um, you know, we get to participate in that. And we are participating in that. That, to me, is kind of the plan. So, um, yeah, I don't anymore, because, again, what the, what the question used to be for me is, do, again, do I believe that Jesus and only Jesus is specifically this unique God-man? Whereas now I'd say, yes, and, <laughs> and so are we. Uh, and we are all kind of waking up to this and learning how to walk in this and learning how, learning how this can be um, our own reality. So that may, that answer may present even more questions than, you know, the initial question. But yeah, essentially I don't wrestle, I don't wrestle with that question anymore because what I'm focused on now is trying to understand in what ways all of us participate in the uh, indwelling presence of Christ. That answer would would have sounded a lot more bizarre prior to the universal Christ by Richard Rohr, you know? Yeah. I think he did so so many of us a favor by normalizing. He put the way he puts it in that book, you can you can go there with him and not consider yourself a heretic. Yeah. And I don't know that that was possible before. Yeah, I agree. I, I totally agree. <clears throat> because yeah, the, the all of those I mean the verses are there. This is the thing, you know, it's similar mm-hmm. to like the universal reconciliation doctrine. I mean if you don't like that, your problem is with Paul, um, because these, or, or whoever wrote Ephesians and Colossians, because we're not sure if Paul wrote those. But man, there's just so much, you know, when, when it says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and then later, and that's in Colossians, and then later in Ephesians, it says that we are filled with the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Well, that's kind of a panentheism, right? So Christ is all and is in all. He's, he fills everything in every way. So there's nothing he doesn't fill in, in every way, right? So, yeah, I think these concepts are there. Uh, and I, I'm very grateful for Richard Rohr because I think he has, is helping us now. It's sort of like this unfolding of a, of a, of a flower or like a blossom, right? It's like more and more layers of, of understanding, are, I think, are being illuminated for us, even in our own New Testament um, and concepts that have kind of laid there for a while. We haven't known what to do with them. But now that I think we can start to see them, uh, it's pretty mind-blowing stuff. Has your understanding of the term being born again changed in light of your deconstruction? Yeah, but, but I think I deconstructed that whole born again 
thing early on. Because to me, when Jesus tells uh, Nicodemus, right, that he must be born again, I see Jesus giving unique and specific answers to the to that question. Because the question was, what must I do to, you know, um, to enter the kingdom? Or what do I, what must I do to gain eternal life? And, and several different people ask Jesus that question throughout the Gospels. And he never gives the same answer twice. And it's only to Nicodemus that he says that you, so in many ways I feel like he's saying you, Nicodemus, for you to enter the kingdom, you need to be born again. You need to become like a little child. And, but, you know, to the rich young ruler, he's, what, what is that guy's problem? What, what is holding that guy back from seeing the kingdom or living in the kingdom? Well, it's your money. So for, he tells the rich young ruler, you to enter the kingdom, you need to sell everything, give it to the poor, and now follow me. And, you know, there, there's, there's different people who ask Jesus that question. He give, gives them each a unique answer. So uh, years ago, I noticed that that born again answer seems to be that because Nicodemus was a Pharisee, right? And their whole thing is they think they know everything. <laughs> they think they, all, they understand all things. And so Jesus is just telling Nicodemus, you need to start over, man. You need to know, you need to go back to being a baby who knows nothing and, and, and be willing to start at zero and, you know, and begin to then see the kingdom. So I think that's what he means when he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Kind of a, you got to go back to square one. Almost, almost back to square one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I, I love that. And I do think that, that that's a sacrifice, right? For somebody like Nicodemus, he's got to be willing to lay down the wisdom or lay down, you know, the position that he holds, yeah. willing to say, I was wrong about some things. Yeah. And you and I both know, because we've both had to say that a few times, mm-hmm. that can be hard. That's going to damage your reputation to say, you know, back when I said this 15 years ago from the pulpit, I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's funny. I, I posted a little meme about this a couple of weeks ago and I, I know some people got really freaked out about it, but um, I think it's really so true. <laughs> imagine, um, that, that. imagine that. Imagine um, that. It was something like about how, you know, when Jesus says metanoia, right, which means it doesn't mean feel repent, doesn't mean feel sorry for your sins. Metanoia means to basically think differently, right? Change the way you're thinking, see from a new perspective. And I realized Wow, what Jesus is saying is you can't enter the kingdom unless you deconstruct every all of your mm. assumptions. Like deconstruction is part of this process. So I, I was like, how encouraging if you're somebody who is deconstructing your religion, you're on the right track. That's, you're, you're actually obeying Jesus' uh, command there. Think differently, change your way of thinking, start over, right? This even this born again idea. Start from start. No, nothing. Go back to the beginning. Start from scratch. Like. There, there is, um, it seems like that's exactly right. You know, even, even down to the level of, of Jesus saying, you know, um, a seed, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it can't bear fruit, right? Again, there's this whole picture of um, you kind of have to let everything, everything else go and be willing to take this uh, incredible leap uh, of faith into the unknown, into a place of I don't have the answers, I don't have it figured out. And I'm willing to say, you know, uh, I'm just going to open my hands and say, you know, God, you show me. I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. And that's I think that's actually part of the process. That's 
that's a beautiful part of the process. So if you're deconstructing, you're on the right track. Where do you think the vengeful, angry God idea originated? Yeah, I think it's just a very simple, I mean, we can just go back to primitive, the most primitive cultures we can imagine, you know, uh, go back to Mesopotamia or even before that, you know, we, we talk about like before there were cities or civilizations when people were just tribes and clans. You see examples of it even in Papua New Guinea, these tribes that are living in uh, in rainforests in South America and Africa and things like this, where they're cut off from the rest of society. And they all kind of have this similar assumption. It's just a, it's a real, it's an assumption based on ignorance, <laughs> observation and ignorance, right? So it's sort of like, hey, a bunch of people are getting sick or the crops aren't growing or the animals are dying or, you know, there's no, we, we, have, we haven't had success in our hunting lately. Or this other, this other competing tribe across the river, they just keep kicking our butt every time and stealing our stuff and we can't seem to get ahead of them. You know, in general, things are going bad for us. And, and then it's sort of, well, why? Why, why is everything kind of going, not going our way? Why are all these bad things happening? Well, the gods must be upset at us. We must have angered the gods somehow. We don't even probably know how, right? Something happened. We did something. We angered the gods. We insulted the gods. At any rate, the god or the gods are not happy with us. And so, well, what can we do? We need to, we need to show the gods that we're sorry. We need to show the gods that we're, you know, we want, we want to fix this. Well, what if we took something that was re- really meant a lot to us, was really valuable, right? And we know in the earliest primitive traditions and cultures, sadly, the, the, uh, the, what they would choose is a child, right? Like, well, my, my son or my daughter is so precious to me. If I gave the God my most precious thing, my, my own child, and I killed my own child, um, this innocent child uh, on the altar, that would show the God that I'm serious. And I'm really, really sorry. Um, and then they would, you know, and so they would do that. And then inevitably, uh, six weeks later, a month later, or even a year later, something, you know, things could suddenly get better. Ah, look, it worked. I knew it. See? And so it's believing in those assumptions. Number one, bad things happen because the gods are angry. Therefore, the gods are upset. The only way to make the gods happy is to sacrifice something that really means a lot to us. You know, later on, we know in Jewish traditions that moved away from being your children and became like, well, you know, uh, my best lamb or my best ox, right? Which is valuable. It would be like us giving away our car, you know, or giving away, I don't know, if we had like a 401k, like just cashing it out and, you know, giving it away. Like it, it, it was something of great, great value and worth to us that we felt like we had to sacrifice in order to make the God happy. And this very simple, primitive way of looking at God and assuming this is the mechanism that will make the God or the gods happy is just what gets repeated all throughout history. And sadly, it even creeps into Judaism and, and even in the Old Testament, that God is continually saying, like to Abraham, Abraham, stop. No, no, no. That's not the kind of God I am. I don't want you to sacrifice your son. You know, I think Moses assumed these things because he came out of Egypt. He assumed this God that they were following must be like all the other gods. He wants sacrifices. and Here's how we're going to do it. You know, but later in Isaiah, God says, you know, guys, I, that wasn't me. I never told you to do that. That's not what I want. I don't care about that. I, I just want you to, you know, 
really, let's go back to the, the, the basics of it. I just want you to love, you know, honor me and lo- honor one another, love one another, uh, love God and love others, right? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so, you know, it's, and it took ultimately Jesus exposing that once and for all to what Daniel says the Messiah would bring in, in the sacrifice. And that's exactly what he does, right? Uh, Jesus is the final sacrifice. He's the ultimate one. Again, not because God wanted it. In fact, it's in spite of the fact. It's, it's because we were still we still believed God did need it. And Jesus exposes the, the, the foolishness of that system, turns it upside down, and that's the end of it. We're, we're done with that whole system. We don't do this anymore, right? We would think it was so strange if somebody said, hey, you know, I'm going to go get a baby goat in the backyard. I'm going to go, let's come, you know, come on over. We're going to, we're going to sacrifice this baby goat in my backyard. <laughs> you know, we'd be like, what a man, what a twisted thing to do. But for most of human history, that was the most normal thing to do. Like, right. So Jesus had to completely shift us away from that mechanism and that way of thinking. Yeah. You referenced the Plato. Uh, we, we think of it as a prophecy because it's so dead on, right? Yeah. Uh, was it in his writing Republics maybe? Yes. Where yes, he so. says that if there was ever a truly just man, we would strip everything away from him. And in the end, I mean, it, it's almost like Plato is saying, there's no such thing as a really just man. And when we strip everything right. away and we poke out his eyes and we crucify him at the very end, when it's all been taken from him, we will see that he's not really just. But what right. happens in Jesus on the cross turns that on its head because he's he's had everything stripped away. He's mocked as a phony king. He's He's uh, been mocked and spat upon, had his beard pulled out. And in the end, with his dying breath, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And so like this impossibly just man exists. And so what does he do? He forgives and then he dies. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. I just, I love the, um, the other thing too, that um, I was, I'm just, I'm still in the process of finishing reading Richard Rohr's book, The Universal Christ. And in there, he points out another reversal to that sacrificial system is that under that sacrificial system, right? When you, when you sacrifice a lamb or an ox or something, a bull on the altar and you burned it up, I mean, let's get real. You've just, you've just turned the temple into like a, a steakhouse, like, man, what's cooking? That smells really good. And so what would they do? Like the priest would eat that food, right? They would cook it and eat it. I mean, some of it might be, you know, we'll cut it off and throw it away or burn it up completely or whatever. But, you know, you got a whole lot of meat here. Um, you would give it to the poor, for people that didn't have food. And so, but, but the whole point of it was laying it on the altar and burning it up on the altar was we're giving this to the God and the God is going to consume it, right? The God is going to eat the, the meat. But by Jesus turning it around, when he says on the bread, this is my body, right? So it's, we're eating God. This is the weird, right? This weird part of it. It's not God eating the thing on the, that's being sacrificed. It's that now we are the ones eating what was, what was put on the sacrifice, but it's God. That's such a weird backwards thing. Like it's so odd, you know, and it's even still scandalous, right? When you read in the gospel of John, when Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. Or just, oh gosh, that is, that is some twisted stuff, man. Uh, it's just so scandalous, but it's part of him turning it upside down. And it's, you know, instead of, he just rearranges all the different, who's playing which role in this whole sacrificial system. 
one of the things that people uh, struggle with, we've we've just gone through the Easter season, all right? So folks have been celebrating the resurrection in their churches this weekend as we talk. One of the things that I hear from folks who are deconstructing or in that spiritual evolution is, I, I don't know what I think about the resurrection anymore because we've we've started to think differently about Scripture, right? Your book, Jesus Unbound, helped us so much with that. So we started to think differently about Scripture. And the for many people, the only reason they believed in a re- literal resurrection of Jesus three days after the cross was because the Bible said so. And, and not all the Gospels, even in their original form, seem to have said that. So what? where are you on resurrection and why? Yeah, well, you know, <clears throat> Easter was just yesterday. As we're as we're recording this, and um, I was honestly wrestling with that too. You know, I um, I feel like I, sometimes I get so skeptical. You know, I've gotten to the place now where it's like, um, do I believe this? Do I? I don't know if I do anymore. What do I think about it? So I was really, really spending a lot of time thinking about it. And in our square uh, three, you know, I do these square one, two, and three groups. So in the square three group, we had a call yesterday, and we and it's Easter, so we were we were kind of talking about that specifically. And again, you know, so much of the debate around Easter is all about, well, what actually happened, right? Like, we, it's so hard to know. Did he physically, did the same body that was crucified, is that the same body that came back to life? You know, but the Gospels are very honest about the fact that there's some ambiguity, that, well, some people didn't believe, or some people didn't even recognize him. And some people were afraid to ask, is it you, Jesus? Because it didn't really look like him. They weren't really sure. I mean, I'm saying like there was doubt. And there and, and the Gospels are actually really comfortable telling you, hey, a whole bunch of people weren't sure and weren't even sure exactly what was going on. Is that really Jesus? Is that Jesus in another body? Is it a new body that was created for him? Or, you know, I mean, they don't know. And so they're kind of, uh, that I appreciate actually, that there is some, there are a lot of question marks around that, even as they're affirming, you know, he's here. We're not sure how, we're not sure in what form, we're not even sure, and some of us aren't even sure it is him, but something's happening and it's, it's remarkable, right? And so anyway, so much, so much of the, what we try to wrestle with around the resurrection is trying to figure out what happened back then. And what I feel, this is where I've come for myself, what I feel is most important to me is not what necessarily, not figuring out what happened back then. It's more important to me to recognize what's happening to me right now. And so I, I have encountered Christ. I know Christ. I have an experience of Christ. I can go back through my whole life and give testimonies of times that I feel like God spoke to me. God was with me. God gave me a dream or a vision or saved my life or sent me an angel or just, you know, kept me from, you know, destroying my life or having a horrible accident or walked with me through some really difficult time of my life that I went through a tragedy or something when I was out of work for a year and a half, you know, the miracles got worked during that time. And the second time I was out of work for a year, uh, a few years later, same thing, how he carried my family and blessed us and took care of us, you know, in supernatural ways. And I would say even up until today, you know, I, I sense the presence of Christ. And for me, that's more important. What, all the, answering the questions of what specifically happened to Jesus and the body of Jesus 2,000 years ago on 
Easter Sunday morning, number one, I am never going to know. <laughs> I'm, I just can't know that. But what I do know, and I don't doubt, is what is the Christ I know, that Christ is alive right now. And I experience Christ in my life, you know, on a daily basis. That's what I know. And I'm not going to worry about the other stuff because it doesn't really matter ultimately. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm encountering Christ right now. How he got here, <laughs> how I mean, how that's happening, you know, I don't think I'll ever know. And I, I think that's part of faith. I don't think I will ever know. Well, your new book, Jesus Unforsaken, I love it so much. I'm so grateful that you put the work into this book um, for all of us to get the benefit of your knowledge on this hugely important subject. Um, I told you before it came out, I wish that I would have had this book 20 years ago. I think it would have made such a difference in my life. And that's not like you should have written it 20 years ago. I don't think you were in a place 20 years ago where you could have written it. Yeah. Uh, it's, It's where you are now. And back in Pentecostal days, I would have called it a right now word. Mm. It's it's the word that we need right now. And so I'm so grateful for that. Um, what do you hope the reader will take away from Jesus Unforsaken? Well, I guess a couple of things. <clears throat> Number one, I, I hope that once and for all, people who read my book will say, I cannot believe in a God who cannot love or forgive his children Uh, unless something bleeds or dies. Uh, I just think we need to be done with the penal substitutionary atonement theory and just let go of that once and for all. So that's that's number one. I I would like for people to have a a better picture of of the Father and of Christ and and of what's happening on the cross. For me, one of the key verses is is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, that God was in Christ, not counting our sins against us, but reconciling the world to himself. And so if we can if we can think of the cross in those terms, what's happening on the cross is absolute forgiveness. Your sins are absolutely dealt with. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and he really did take away the sins of the world. Um, and and now we are we are the recipients of reconciliation and we're ambassadors of reconciliation, and our message should be not condemnation, but reconciliation. Um, but really, what I really, really hope is the final chapters of the book, um, you know, we start to think about more, more along the lines of what we were saying a minute ago, like the implications of Christ in us, um, how, how what's true for Christ is true of all humanity and what that means for our unity with Christ, um, but also what it means for our unity with one another and all creation. Uh, for me, these are the most powerful things as I meditate on these. So I, I hope people read those last two chapters of Unforsaken with the same kind of awe and joy and excitement that I have when I was, you know, learning these things and discovering these things and, and writing it out myself. Uh, I think there's a there's a whole nother level of freedom for us because of Christ in us. That that I hope people really get that get an imagination for that and uh, start learning how to walk that out or just being excited about learning how to walk that out. Last time I talked to you, you were um, developing a course around the material in Jesus Unforsaken. Has that launched yet or will it be offered again? How's that going? Yeah. Oh, so it launched today, actually. <laughs> uh, today is the first day. It's a three-week course. Um, I will run it again. So every month I run these online courses based on my book. So it's a different one every month. Um, so, you know, here in the month of April, I've launched this one for Unforsaken. 
and it'll come back around again. But there's six books, so it'll be at least probably six months. Like I, this probably won't run again until like maybe September. But uh, yeah, yeah, I do run, uh, do online courses. I, I really have loved doing these courses and I try to make them as affordable as I can. I've shipped it over to my own platform now. So if they don't cost $60 anymore, they're like $19.99. So they're very affordable. What what course will you offer in May? So next month in May, I'm gonna I'm doing Jesus Untangled. So that will be the one on faith and politics. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Okay, starting back at the beginning. That's good. Yeah, starting over again. Fantastic. All right. How can folks uh, get information on those courses? Well, the easiest thing, probably, if you if you're interested specifically in those courses, go to BK2SQ1. So that stands for Back to Square One. So BK and the number two, SQ and the number one, dot com. Uh, that's where all the courses are, uh, all the all the book courses that I do, plus the square one and two and three. Also, I've done these other things called Ground Zero that are more like sort of weekend webinar type things on certain topics uh, that people are if they're interested in. They can check those out too. And um, yeah. What's what's the next book for you? Oh, I'm so, man, I'm glad you asked me. In fact, you know what? Maybe you could even contribute something if you want because it would be fun. Um, <clears throat> so we found out, it came to our attention that our friends at the Gospel Coalition are putting together a book, uh, sort of a 12 different authors, I think, or 12 or so authors. So basically they're bloggers from the Gospel Coalition. And they're writing a book together um, called, the title of their book is um, Before You Lose Your Faith. And it's a book about deconstruction and reconstruction. And I just want to say it's horrific. I've read the first 40 pages of it because they, they released a sample of it. And what I've read I was telling my publisher, Ralph, after I read those 40-page samplers of that book, I said, you know what? When this book comes out, I think I'm going to have to buy a physical copy just so I can throw it against the wall. Uh, it really <laughs> it really infuriated me um, because it's written from a perspective of people who don't understand what deconstruction is. Um, they're defining deconstruction and reconstruction in ways that are just, uh, man, talk about not getting it, not knowing what this is even all about. So there was, there was a, I would, something I read the other day. I finally I had to put it down because I was getting so worked up. Um, it, one of the guys said something like reconstruction. So he said, there's three elements of reconstruction. And the, the most important element of reconstruction is this. Whatever your reconstruction looks like, it must be, it must be a complete return to orthodoxy without changing or redefining any of the terms. That's not reconstruction. That's that's just not deconstructing anything or coming right back around again to where were you were like, do you not understand what it's like to question these things and to say, I don't I can't believe these things anymore? And then to tell somebody, well, your only option for reconstruction is to just go right back where you were, you know. Uh, it's it's just so upsetting to me. So anyway, because we found out about that this book was going to happen we got this idea. Um, when I say we, I mean all the choir authors. And we were like, you know what? We should write a, a, a similar, almost a response book. Our book is going to be called Before You Lose Your Mind. And it's, it's a, uh, I don't have decided what the, what the subtitle is, but it basically it's going to be in my cell. I'm going to edit it. I'll be editing it and contributing a couple of chapters, but uh, we're going to have chapters from Matthew DeStefano, Katie Valentine, uh, Derek Day, Mark Harris, Matthew Corman, Michelle Collins, I mean, everybody. Gosh, let me look over here. Skeeter Wilson, Brandon Dragan, Josh Rogie, Brandon Andrus, um, and maybe Jason Elam. I think it'd be awesome. So we just want to contribute chapters to kind of like address 
deconstruction and reconstruction, tell a little bit of our own stories and actually, you know, help people, you know, actually tell people we know what this feels like and it's okay to ask these questions. And here are some better ways to think about some of these doctrines like hell or the cross or the Bible or the end times, you know, or whatever it is you're deconstructing. So I'm super, super excited to get that book out when it does come out. So our goal is to put it out maybe by May. We're hoping some like middle of May. So we're, we're fast tracking this book. When it comes out, it'll be available first on Kindle, 99 cents. And we're just, our goal is just to blow their doors off. Like <laughs> uh, I just want, I want this book to dominate every category that their book is in. And if anybody goes to Amazon, they're going to see our book first. That's my goal. Cause I, it just makes me angry that this book, that the, that the gospel coalition first of all, has created so many people's stress and pain that's driven them to deconstruction. And then now you're going to write a book about it that basically says don't. <laughs> or if you're doing it, God's, you know, you're making Jesus sad. Um, no, no, you're not. So we, that's my next project. I'm really excited about getting that thing up. Basically, they're publishing this book so that their followers will buy it to give to all their friends who are deconstructing. That's exactly. The only people that are going to buy that book, Jason, are, you're right, people who, who um, they're not deconstructing, they barely understand it themselves either. And it's like, well, you know, my friend Jason, he's, he's believing in universal reconciliation. I better get this book and give it to him. You know, Jason, you better read this book. It, it'll put you back on the right track. I'm concerned about your soul, brother. Read this book for me and tell me what yeah. you think. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> oh, that's horrifying. Keith, uh, I love you, brother. You have put the perfect... Uh, period at the end of the sentence that is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I'm grateful for you and all these episodes that we've been able to do together. Uh, I will say this, I, I am considering this the final episode, but when you write future books in the Jesus <laughs> Unseries, I'm certainly open to further conversations down the road. Wow. So like I can, I can like jumpstart you back to life here, right? I just <laughs> Temporarily, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so can I ask you something? I know this is, this is like your podcast and, and you're supposed to be interviewing me, but um, again, as, as your friend and as a fan of, of this messy, messy spirituality podcast, um, I wanted to ask you a couple things. So like, can you, can you tell us why, why did you start this in the first place? What made you want to make this podcast? Honestly, I wanted to have conversations with people like you. And I wanted to have um, a vehicle through which I could process my own deconstruction. And I got to hear and, and share with the world a lot of stories of people who are on the same journey that I've been on the last few years. And it's been so mm -hmm. encouraging to me. And I've heard from a lot of listeners that say it's been encouraging to them as well, just to know that we're not alone, Yeah, that there are other people dealing with the same questions that we are and uh, coming to similar conclusions. But it's not about the conclusions. It's about sharing the journey together. Yep. And it's been great. And I was inspired by the Heretic Happy Hour. I was inspired by, uh, can I say this in church? I oh, was yeah. inspired by the What If Project uh, and uh -huh. so many other podcasts out there that um, were asking questions that I didn't ever hear anybody say out loud, but had wondered myself. Um, so yeah. many 
new podcasts have arisen while we've been going that I feel like that ground is is very well tended right now. And so, you know, if yeah. I do something else in the in the future, it, it will look different. It won't just be deconstruction stories. Um, and so I don't know. I'm open to that down the road. Um, but for right now, it's it's time for me to go to work and support my family and and hopefully finish a book in the not too distant future. Oh, yeah, man. Definitely want to. I want to see that. I definitely want to see your book. Yeah. Well, cool, man. I mean, can you um, do you have any do you have any highlights so far? I mean, again, don't say me. So other than me, (laughs) what other guests have you talked to, um, you know, like interviews you did or just moments that happened that were like really special to you or like or surprising to you? Well, it's been cool because I think all of them were the best ones so far when I recorded them. Uh-huh. Um, because, you know, I mean, I, I started off with you and I was like, oh, this is so great. If this is what podcasting is, it's, it's just going to be the best thing ever. And every time I talked to you, I thought it was better than the previous conversation. And, you know, I did conversations with Brad Jerzak and uh, Brian Zahn was kind of like the the dream guest yeah. and he was so approachable and so easy. Actually, you helped bring that together, I think. Um, but <laughs> I talked to him and it was just the best conversation. Yeah. Um, talked to Baxter Kruger, which again, uh-huh. you put together and it was just <laughs> incredible. Um, I think one of the real highlights for me personally was um, William Paul Young. Oh yeah. Paul Young is just so transparent and so open. His heart is just wide open. And so if you're talking to him, he just welcomes you inside of himself. There's just like this, this shack <laughs> within that has been rebuilt and refurbished. Yeah. yeah. Like a tool shed or a, right. Yeah. Something like that. Something like yeah. A, yeah. <laughs> but, but he's made room for you Yeah, and he welcomes you in and uh, you just feel like you're, in, in a divine embrace the whole time that you're talking to him. I mean, in that episode, we were both crying before it was over. It was just uh, incredible. Wow. Um, yeah. And so those are, those are highlights for me. But I loved talking to people that maybe folks had never heard of yeah. who were just in their own struggle. And every single one of them. I remember Ashley Robbins coming on. I remember um, Derek Myers when he came on. I remember so many others who just came on and and shared their journey. And they had these nuggets of gold that they had dug out for themselves. They didn't read it mm-hmm. in a book. They didn't. They just had an experience. And I just loved sharing yeah. that experience with folks. Yeah, man. Well, you do, you've done some good work, my friend, uh, and you're going to leave it up, right? People can still download it and why listen to it, right? Yeah, it's it's going to be out there for as long as I can afford to keep it out there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's like a little, you know, service fee that you have to uh, to pay your hosting every month. But I'm going to, my intention is to leave it out there for a long time because I, this is what's so weird about it. Our downloads are better now than they've ever been. Isn't that funny? And I've been very sporadic with uh-huh. posting new episodes since I had COVID back in December. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons that I'm kind of having to let it go, um, well, f- for one one concern has been financial just because COVID just devastated us financially. Yeah. And between COVID and the IRS, um, we basically, uh, you know, just really struggled this last month or so. So I've got a full-time job and I'm working 12-hour shifts now. Yeah. And so there's just not as much time for that. The other thing is COVID kind of left me different. Yeah. 
I struggle to read a book now. My vision is really blurry all the time. Ugh. And so it's really hard for me. And it's a lot, it takes a lot longer than it used to for me to read a book. Wow. And since so many of my conversations were around a book, it was really hard uh, to continue to do that at the pace that I had been doing it before. Yeah. So anyway, um, it, it's, it's been a struggle. It's something I can't do as well or as fast or as efficiently as I, I used to. I still deal with brain fog. I, I remember my first interview back was with John, um, Jonathan Puddle, and who I love and uh, loved having him on here. But um, my brain just cramped up right in the middle of it. And I just completely forgot what I was talking about. Now I've got a fantastic sound engineer in Eric Howell who edits those things out. So <laughs> yeah. they never see the light of day. And I'm so grateful for Eric, who's now moving on to bigger and better things. Um, but yeah, uh, he has uh, protected the public from uh, my brain cramps uh, <laughs> since COVID. And so I'm grateful for that. Uh, but maybe he won't be as busy doing that when he's doing it for others. Um, editing has been a chore for this podcast, I'm sure. Uh, but I'm really grateful for Eric. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for folks like Carl Forehand and uh, yeah. Todd Vick, folks who have just been friends yeah. in real life, not just podcast guests. It's been awesome. It's been a great yeah. ride, man. Wouldn't trade it for yeah, anything. Sure. It's been awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you for amazing content, beautiful conversations. Thank you for helping to help me spread the word about my books to, to people. And um, yeah, let's do it again, man. I'm going to get to working on a book so we can do this again as soon as possible. <laughs> that sounds good, man. I look forward to all the special episodes to come once a month when Keith Giles puts out a new book. <laughs> <laughs> once a month when I have a new book, yeah. right? Okay. I love you, brother. All right. Love you, Jason.